0: owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. May God bless his word to us this morning. Well, during the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, Protestants stopped celebrating uh, many of the holy days and seasons of the Roman Catholic Church—it was, uh, you know, one day after another, uh, a whole litany of different holy days that were celebrated. But they did maintain uh, a few of the big ones, like Christmas, Easter, Ascension Sunday, Pentecost, and a couple of others. Now we continue to follow this uh, tradition today as we begin what is uh, often called Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday, then we have Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and, of course, Easter Sunday next week when we celebrate Christ's resurrection. Now, in this week, we're going to be focusing on the final days of Jesus. As he enters Jerusalem, he suffers and dies, and then, of course, is raised from the dead. And in this week, we are uh, celebrating uh, the culmination of Jesus' life and ministry where he completes the mission for which he came, dying for sinners such as all of us are. Now, this is all kicked off today, Palm Sunday. It's the the day when we learn about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And as we have noted in our hymns, or maybe you have picked up the thread in the hymns that we have sung the focus is usually and appropriately on the joyful celebration of the kingship of Jesus. Well, today I want to broaden our focus a little bit in order to lead us into a more thorough repentance and a deeper faith in Jesus through, of course, the Holy Spirit applying God's word to our lives. Now, you see on your outlines, there are three points that I want to walk you through this morning I know we're all eager for lunch, and so when I get uh, three-quarters of the way through it, I'm still on point one. Don't panic. Points two and three are short. Point one is long. Well, first we see here uh, a a, a number of examples where we see the guilt of self-interested religion. First we see the disciples who are accompanying Jesus on the road, and it's not just the, the 12, but... Expanded out to all those following Jesus. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he rides in like a conquering king, hence the the stress on the kingship of Jesus. And the large group of those who have been following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem and have witnessed all, as it says here, the mighty works that Jesus had done culminating in raising Lazarus from the dead. They are hailing him with Psalm 118 as we noted earlier. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're spreading their cloaks on the ground in front of him as he rides into Jerusalem. That's a a sign of royalty. That's what you did for kings when they rode into town. Now, the other gospel writers say that they also waved palm branches and threw palm branches before Jesus. Well, palm branches were a nationalistic symbol for Israel, much like uh, we wave flags or the the bald eagle is a symbol of, of our nation and patriotism. That's what they were doing here. Now, they correctly identified Jesus as the king, as the Messiah, the promised one to come, but they had their own ideas, which we've noticed in previous weeks, about what type of Messiah he should be. See, they were looking for a political leader to free them from Roman oppression and taxation. In fact, in just about 30 years, they're going to go to war with the Romans because they're going to revolt over the taxes. And that's why they hated tax collectors so much. We looked at Zacchaeus a couple of weeks ago. They hated tax collectors because they worked for the Romans, and the Romans were oppressing them, taxing them to death. Well, they wanted freedom from these Romans, and they wanted Jesus to be their king. They saw the mighty works that he had done and and saw the potential at how he, with his miraculous power, could defeat the Romans. However, Jesus didn't come to, to give them peace with the Romans. He came to give them peace with God, and they did not recognize that fully or completely. Some of them never did. Some, it took a little while before they got it. But bottom line is, their agenda for Jesus was not Jesus' agenda. They wanted Jesus to save them from the Romans, but Jesus did not come to save them from the Romans. He came to save them from sin. Now, even as uh, we have seen, even his closest disciples did not understand the nature of Jesus' mission, and certainly there were some in the crowd who did have true saving faith in Jesus, even with an imperfect understanding. And I find that comforting. We don't have to know everything perfectly in order to be Christians. Now, we want to strive to learn and grow and, and grasp things more deeply all through our lives. But putting our faith in Christ uh, requires the simple faith of a child, giving our lives over to him, turning from sin into to Christ. So there were people in the crowd. They had true faith. They just didn't have a complete understanding. That would come later. But many of the others were simply wanting to Jesus to do only what they thought he could do for them, not what Jesus actually came to do for them. And once they see that Jesus will not ascend to the throne in Jerusalem, that he will not become the king of Israel in a political sense, they turn on him. And their cries will turn from Hosanna to crucify him. He's of no use to us anymore. Now, it's easy for us to fall into this same way of thinking and living. Sometimes people want blessings from Jesus. They want what they think he should be able to give them but don't necessarily want Jesus controlling their lives. And maybe that's sometimes true of all of us. We we easily fall into that. Bless me, Lord, but don't rule me, Lord. Lord, I want you to give me these things and these helps, and perhaps I want to be saved from hell, but I don't actually want you to be Lord over my life. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. It's, he comes; it's a, it's a, it's one package. He is Savior and Lord. We might have our agenda for Jesus, but are we interested in His agenda for us? Have we ever asked Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do? Or, to put it in Jesus' own words, that He expressed to the Father not my will, but your will be done, O Lord. We want Jesus the blesser, but we we don't want Jesus the Lord and Savior. And what happens when Jesus disappoints us? When we, we don't feel like he's answering our prayers or giving us what we feel we deserve from him? Well, just like that crowd, we turn on Jesus and you often see people who have maybe professed faith in Christ, but yet their prayers may not be answered in the way they want them to answered, and so they turn from Christ. They, they turn away, and they say, this is not for me. They didn't count the cost. We get angry, and perhaps we quit seeking him. So today is a good day to examine yourself. Where are you standing on this? Are you just out for what Jesus can give you, or do you want Jesus, a Savior, for yourself? Well, let's look at the Pharisees as well because they also exhibited self-interest. Look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples when they see this display of, of uh, jubilation and, and, and the, the words that they're using in praise of Jesus, identifying him as the Messiah and, and using these words of Scripture uh, for Jesus. Why did they say this? Why are they asking Jesus? Well, they would love to shut the crowds up themselves, but they know they can't do it, and they turn to Jesus. They actually ask him to do it for them. There's a couple of reasons why. First, they hated Jesus. That's been clear from the Gospels. They were jealous of the attention he was getting. Uh, They were the ones, it's been made clear to us through the Gospels, that they were looking for an opportunity to put him to death. But also, I think the reason that they want this stopped, this adoration of, of, of Jesus stopped, is because they were afraid of the Romans particularly how the Romans might respond to this commotion that's going on in the capital city. See, they were probably worried about the appearance of a rebellion against Roman authority. See, the people were ready for that. They had already had those types of people rise up in their land, and many people are ready to follow them because they hated the Romans and the oppression of the Romans. And the Romans wouldn't like that. They wouldn't like a rebellion in their land. Now, it's not that the Pharisees were interested in the Romans' feelings or that they liked the Romans. They were were just as eager to be free of the Romans as as anyone, any Jew would be. However, the Pharisees had carved out a place of power within Jerusalem, and they had influence there, as we will see uh, going forward in Holy Week. And Jesus threatened that power and influence. And that's why well, John tells us the reason they conspired to kill Jesus. In John 11:47 and 48, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And what they're saying is they will not be in power or control anymore. And Jesus was a threat to that. So that's why they want it stopped. Not just because they hated Jesus. Now, are you like the Pharisees who would rather get rid of Jesus than ever submit to him? Well, notice Jesus' enigmatic response here. In verse 40, he says, uh, he answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, One way of understanding this hard-to-understand reply from Jesus is that what Jesus is saying is praise is inevitable. You can't stop it. Uh, If the human voice is silenced, then all of creation will, will pick up the chorus of praise to Jesus at this moment. And that's a legitimate way to understand this. But there's another way to understand this, and I, I think this is a, a legitimate understanding, uh, is that the stones, when, he, when Jesus says the stones will cry out, they're not crying out in praise, like just picking up the chorus of praise that's, that in theory has been silenced, but rather the, they're crying out in, with an objection to silencing the truth about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. And you notice here that the word stones is the same word that's used when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And he and he's, looks into the future and he sees that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and there's not going to be one stone on another. It's the same exact word. Now, it can mean a rock. It can mean a stone. It can mean a perfectly formed brick. You know, It's a broad term, of course, but it is the same term. Well, Jesus says, uh, they will not leave, verse 44, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, couple that with the fact that the word cry out, the the stones will cry out. It's not the same word that is used in reference to the disciples loudly shouting the praise, loudly shouting Hosanna in the highest. Rather, that word cry out is a word that that is used in situations where someone is crying about injustice or they're crying out in terror when Jesus is walking on the water, this is the same word that's used when the disciples saw him. They, they cried out because they were afraid of, they thought that they were seeing a ghost. The, the, the Greek word is actually an onomatopoeia. It sounds like, it's kind of like our word croak. Uh, it, it actually sounds a lot, it's crack so. But the word croak, of course, when you hear a frog croaking, You're describing what the frog is doing, but it also the frog sounds like that. Well that's what this word is. It's a it's a loud cry and it and it sounds like it. Uh sounds like it it describes. Sounds like what it describes. Now the word that that is used for what the disciples are doing when they're they're singing and shouting loud about Jesus in the Greek it's megalophone. Megaphone where we get our word megaphone, shouting, broadcasting loudly about Jesus. That's not what the stones, that's not what Jesus says the stones are going to do. There's a clue in Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, Habakkuk keeps complaining to the Lord about how he's executing justice in the world. And uh, he's really upset that the Babylonians are, are going to be used to, to destroy Judah. And uh, so he's complaining to the Lord and waiting for the replies, but God assures him, that the Babylonians, indeed, they themselves, will come under judgment. And about the Babylonians, it said here in Habakkuk 2, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. He's just, that's the Babylonians. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. That's what the Babylonians did. They conquered a large swath of the known world. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So the, the stones of this house that the Babylonian lives in is crying out a woe to the person who has built that house through blood and injustice and sin. And I think that's the same thing that the, the stones are doing. They're saying, if you refuse to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, if you cut that off, then woe to you. Please don't let that happen, humans. Please don't silence this truth that Jesus is the Messiah because if you refuse this Messiah, then I'm going to be pulled down and destroyed. Of course, that's what happened in about 35 years. The Romans came and did not leave one stone on another. So the stones would cry out as a a warning. Uh, as a as a may it never be kind of statement. And we see here refusing Jesus the Messiah on his terms is a mistake that has eternal consequences. And it did for these people as well. Now this goes hand in hand of course as we've met, noted with Jesus's lament over Jerusalem in the midst of this great celebration that's going on and the joy that everybody's having the the party that's going on jesus weeps as he looks at jerusalem he's got a panorama of the city perhaps and he sees it there before him and he draws as he draws near he wept over it would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes See, the people of Jerusalem wanted to have peace from the Romans. They wanted to have peace from the oppression that the Romans were bringing into their lives. But Jesus is saying what you really need is peace with God. That's what's really important. You need a Messiah who will save you from sin, not from the Romans. And ultimately, they will reject Jesus as Messiah And in about 30 years from this date, the Romans will go to war with the Jews. As I said, it started with a revolt because of taxes. Many factions came together. uh, Some of the zealots who were fighting uh, uh, the the Roman armies and had moderate success, Uh, they had to flee to Jerusalem. And so you had the people in control who were more of the Sadducees, who were... uh, uh, kind of under the thumb of the Romans, and then you had all these zealots come in, and and they started warring inside the city while the Romans were outside the city. And so finally, after some delays, the Romans start to siege Jerusalem in the late 60s. And and, uh, Vespasian was the general in charge. He gets called to be emperor and his son Titus is put in his place and Titus redoubles the effort to come at Jerusalem and he breaks through the outer two walls of Jerusalem within three weeks but he can't quite get into that inner wall, the inner wall of Jerusalem. It took him seven months to do so. So by the time they finally did break through that wall, people inside were half starved because in the war between the factions they burned up their food supply so the people were starving to death and when the romans came through they were so ticked off at this point with the jews in jerusalem that they just slaughtered everybody in their path and they destroyed the city and the temple of course jesus looks into that future and sees it and he weeps because they don't know the things that make for true peace. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. Jesus came to them, but they rejected him. And that led them down a political road that led them into war and destruction. The opportunity they had slipped away from them self-interest of the people of Jerusalem uh, leads to their doom ultimately. They did not come to the Messiah for the peace with God that he was bringing through his life, death, and resurrection. And then finally we have the money changers. The money changers were they were a necessity. You had a lot of people uh, on pilgrimage into Jerusalem to come for the Passover festival. Uh, they came from foreign lands. They didn't have uh, their sacrifices with them, they had to purchase sacrifices, but in order to purchase sacrifices, they had to have the proper money because they only accepted a certain type of money. So it's kind of like going to the airport and getting, uh, getting money for the country you're going to visit. You go to the place uh, and get the exchange rate, and you get ripped off, and, and I'm sure that was what was going on here. The exchange rate is never good, and it wasn't in these times either. Now, it's not such a bad thing. I mean, of course, they were probably taking advantage of these travelers, but it's not such a bad thing. It was a a good service in theory. They needed to have sacrifices, but they didn't need to be inside the temple. They were in the court of Gentiles. That's another sermon in and of itself that the Gentiles could not come to a reverent place to worship God. They should have been outside the temple complex, but they were in there because they didn't care. They weren't interested in reverence. They weren't interested in, uh, in worship. They were interested in turning a prophet. It was a good op- opportunity. Well, in Jeremiah 7, um, you see a, a, a prophecy by Jeremiah where he comes to the gate of that temple and he sees the same kind of thing going on because the people in that day, they were all corrupt and, sinf- and full of iniquity and they shed blood and he says... And and he identified the attitude that we've got the temple of the Lord and we don't need to worry about anything. God's on on our side, so we can live however we want to live and we'll just go to the temple regularly, formally, without any heart in it at all. And so Jeremiah says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. But he goes on and says, you just trust in iniquity. And then he reminds them of Shiloh. Before Jerusalem was conquered, Shiloh was the place where people went to worship God. And he says, you think... Jerusalem the temple is special well just let me remind you about Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel and now because you have done all these things declares the Lord and when I spoke to you persistently you did not listen and when I called you you did not answer therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh Shiloh in that day was Uh, Shiloh in this day, in the New New Testament era, was just covered in vines. It was uh, an abandoned site. I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Jesus comes into the temple with that same message, really. You've made my, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. He, He actually picks up Jeremiah's words there, a den of robbers. Jesus will not have it. Now maybe we come to these uh, several examples of, of uh, self-interested religion. You know perhaps, like the money changers, you, you come to church, you're, you're there in uh, the, the place of worship, but you're not really there for the right reasons. Perhaps it's just a formal show, many people were coming into the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and they thought just because they were checking the box, it was okay. Well, Jesus says, no, we're not having that. And the good thing is, as we are confronted with our sin here, we have a gracious Messiah. We see in the midst of all these wrong ideas and attitudes and sin uh, in in Jesus' day and in our own hearts... What we see shining through is the Savior, the Messiah Savior, the grace of the Messiah Savior. Real quickly, we see here a willing Savior. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem. And Luke's been telling us about this journey uh, to Jerusalem since chapter 9 of his gospel. Jesus persistently is heading in that direction. He knows what is going to happen to him. He knows why he's going to go there. Yet he takes it on willingly. J.C. Ryle says, forever let us rest our hearts on this most comfortable thought. We have a most willing and loving Savior. It was his delight to do his Father's will and to make a way for lost and guilty man to draw near to God in peace. He loved the work he had taken in hand in the poor sinful world which he came to save. Never then let us give way to the unworthy thought that our Savior does not love to see sinners coming to him. And does not rejoice to save them. He who was a most willing sacrifice on the cross is also a most willing sacrifice at the right, a most willing Savior at the right hand of God. He is just as willing to receive sinners who come to Him now for peace as He was to die for sinners when He held back His power and willingly suffered on Calvary. Isn't that good news for people who are selfish and self centered and Often live according to our own agenda that we can go to new to the Savior, and He's willing to save us. But we also see His compassion shining through. He He weeps over the blindness of the of the people of Jerusalem. His heart is broken over them. And he weeps over us as well when we persist in our unrepentance and our lack of faith. And he's a reverent Savior. He goes into that temple, drives out the money changers. He's working to preserve reverence for God. He works there to create a space where man and God can come together. And that's what he was doing. That's what he came to earth to do. Not just in the temple, but that's his whole mission. 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And we have a persistent Savior. Even though the majority of the people are going to reject him there in Jerusalem, he continues to teach, it says there, in the temple day after day. He's already wept over it. He says, you're blind. You, you won't even recognize it. But there he is, teaching and teaching and teaching day after day after day until he dies. Their day of visitation was coming to a close. And yet Jesus worked for them to the very end. Well, all of Jesus' life is pursuit of sinners such as you and I are. He came to earth to pursue sinners, those who are lost, those lost sheep, to bring them home, He's a persistent Savior. Will you persist in your rejection of him? Will you persist in the sins that so easily beset you and me? Well, finally, how do we respond? Well, obviously, we need to repent and and run to this Savior who is most willing to save us. And, And we need to show our gratitude. Verse 47, He was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on His words. That's that's a literal translation. They were hanging on His words. They were enwrapped by what Jesus was teaching. They were affixed to Him. He had their full attention there in the temple. As we come to the Lord... We need to take our attention off our own agenda and fix it upon Jesus. As we come to this Savior who cleanses us and frees us from the guilt of sin and the power of sin, our hearts should well up with gratitude and, and just be thinking and, and learning and growing and, and listening to Jesus. What can I do for you, Lord? How can I serve you? How can I respond To the grace that you have shed abroad in my life well let's pray together heavenly father we thank you for your word and we pray that we would indeed drop our own agendas for our lives and our own self-centeredness and that we would stop the the sins that so easily beset us that give us only temporary pleasure that are truly idols of the heart and help us lord to worship you and you alone to turn from sin and put our trust and faith in you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in your ways with, a, with grateful hearts, reminding ourselves daily of the great sacrifice that you have made to save us from destruction, eternal destruction. And Lord, may that fuel our service, our daily service to you and to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.